Our scripture reading this morning before Brother Kyle's lesson is, comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Matthew 6, verse 31 through 33. Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the, after all these things the Gentiles seek. For Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. To you. So a man walked into a pet store, and he asked for a bird, for a parrot in particular, that could talk. He really wanted a talking parrot. And the pet store owner informed him that he had just that bird, and he suggested a nice cage and, and, and all the equipment he would need for the bird to be set up in his nice little home. And so the man made the purchase and went home with the bird, the cage, and all that. And a few days later, he returned to the pet store irate because that bird wouldn't talk. So the pet store owner said, I, I know what the problem is. Your bird is lonely. So here's what I recommend. Why don't you buy this little mirror put it in the cage, and when the bird sees his reflection, the bird will just start talking. So the man buys the mirror, goes home, sets it up in the cage. He returns three days later to the pet store, and he said, that bird still won't talk. And so the pet store owner thought for a moment, and he said, maybe he's bored. Why don't you buy this little bell, put it in his cage, and when he has something to play with and he's entertained, then he'll be more likely to talk. So the man bought the bell, took it home, put it in the cage. He returned a week later with a shoebox. And he said, that parrot you sold me died. I want my money back. And the pet store owner was very sympathetic. And he said, I'll reimburse you for all the cost, but... I really want to know one thing. Did the bird ever finally talk? And the man said, yeah, actually right before he died, he said one word. And the pet store owner said, well, what was it? The man said, food. <laughs> now, I know that's a pitiful joke. I don't make these up. I find these for the record. But I share that one for this reason. Sometimes it's very easy for us to overlook the bare necessities. Sometimes it's very easy for us to get caught up with everything else that we forget to notice, to emphasize, to care about the most basic, essential needs for survival, like food, water, clothing, shelter. See, we live in a culture of prosperity. Those needs, those needs are tended to for most of us every day. Those needs tend to be easy to resolve. But this time of year exposes those needs in our community more than usual. And, and I've had the pleasure, the opportunity to assist several people with benevolent requests on behalf of this congregation over the past few weeks. And doing so has compelled me to reflect on needs this morning. 
And so while for many of us, our blessings and our abundance are, are foremost on our minds right now, especially after the holiday, I want to take this opportunity to study what the Bible has to say about needs. So I'm calling this lesson, as I do so often, Needology. And I want you to walk through Scripture with me today on this particular subject. And the first thing I want you to notice Bible says about needs is this, that God perceives our needs. If you go to Matthew chapter 6 and into the, this section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is presenting the model prayer at the start of the chapter, you'll notice he makes this statement. He instructs his disciples before giving them the model prayer. He instructs them to not be like the heathens who use vain repetitions and want to be heard for their many words. Now, why does he not want them to do that? Well, if you look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, he says why. It's because your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, God knows what you need before you ask, so don't abuse prayer with a performance mindset. If you stay in Matthew chapter 6, you'll notice later in the chapter, at verses 31 through 32, which uh, we read a moment ago, Jesus instructed us to not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. In other words, God knows that you need those things that are necessary for survival so you don't have to worry about them. Now, that's easier said than done, admittedly. But Jesus, here in the, 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 throughout the chapter of Matthew chapter 6, throughout this section of the Sermon on the Mount, he's repeatedly stating the fact that God knows your needs. In fact, you can go to Psalm chapter 69 and verse 33, in that passage, David declares that the Lord hears the needy. And the point is that consistently throughout the Bible, we're informed that God is aware of and concerned about our needs because He is the God who knows our needs. Now, that's not a complicated theological point to make in a sermon like this. But maybe today you need to be reminded that God knows what you're dealing with. That God knows the needs in your life, whether that be a material need, a physical need, an emotional need, especially a spiritual need. God knows your needs. Now, here's the next thing we need to notice that Scripture says about needs. And that is that God prefers for us to communicate our needs to him. You see, the fact that God knows our needs may lead us to believe that we don't need to ask him to address our needs. But that's not true. The Bible indicates that God wants us to ask him, that God expects us to ask him, that asking is our responsibility. In Luke chapter 11, between verses 5 through 13, Jesus tells the parable of the friend at midnight. The premise of this parable is that it's late at night, and this man had locked up his house, tucked in his kids, gotten into bed, when suddenly one of his neighbors banged on the door. 
in desperate need of some food. Now, initially, the neighbor's request was declined by the man because he didn't want to get out of bed. It was an inconvenience for him. So he put off his neighbor. But the parable clearly indicates that the neighbor persisted with his needy request until the man finally got up and met his need. You can see this in Luke chapter 11 and verse 8 in particular, because there Jesus said, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. Now what's interesting about this parable is that it's told in Luke's gospel immediately after Jesus presented the model prayer. We were just in Matthew chapter 6, where in Matthew's gospel, Jesus presents the model prayer. Now we're in Luke's gospel. It's Luke 11 where he's presenting the model prayer. And Luke indicates that Jesus shared the model prayer with his disciples after they requested for him to teach them to pray, back in, chapter, in Luke 11 verse 1. So this parable of the persistent widow, which, or excuse me, of the persistent friend at midnight, this parable is immediately after the model prayer. And that means that this parable is about prayer. The model prayer was provided to teach us what to pray. And I believe this parable was ultimately provided to teach us how to pray. To do so with persistence. To pray with boldness. To even go to God with faith. That he is the one with whom we're communicating and he can and he will do something about our needs. But now I want you to notice the application Jesus makes from this parable. It's in Luke chapter 11, it's verse 9 and 10. This is what Jesus says is the point. He says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find Knock, and it will be open to you, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Jesus promises that it will be given to you. What is the it? It is whatever the need is. But the it is not the emphasis of the parable. The emphasis of the parable is the condition for it to be given. And the condition is that you ask, that you seek, that you knock. God already knows what you need, but God expects you to communicate those needs to him. Why? Because if you're unwilling to admit that you have needs, then you're unwilling to admit that you need God. God desires for you to communicate your needs to him because that is a way of you declaring your need for him in your life. So ask, seek, knock, because God prefers for us to communicate our needs to him. Now the third thing I want you to notice about needs in Scripture is that God promises to meet the needs of his people. Paul made an extraordinarily bold declaration about God in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. That passage says, My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches, 
his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, I find it very interesting that this bold declaration is stated shortly after Paul wrote Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. I want you to notice this passage with me real quick. Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, it's so interesting to me that, that Paul speaks about contentment before he speaks about God supplying every need. Paul emphasized mankind's contentment before he emphasized God's provision. Why does that matter? That matters because there is an extreme difference between a need and a want. A need is something on which survival depends. A want is something on which satisfaction depends. And contentment, which is a learned characteristic according to what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, contentment occurs when one's survival and satisfaction are one and the same thing. What I mean is that the contented heart is one that has so aligned itself with the will of God that it wants nothing more than for the will of God to be done in all things. And as a result, the contented heart's satisfaction is found in simply having its needs met. So let's go back to Jesus' anti-worrying teaching over there in Matthew chapter 6. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls on us not to worry, but pay a particular attention to what he says here in what was our scripture reading, Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. Jesus said, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek, a- seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said the Gentiles, or the pagans, or the unbelievers, they're the ones who seek after the needs of this life, like food, water, and clothing. But think about what seek after implies. Seek after implies prioritization. In other words, The Gentiles, the pagans, the unbelievers, they prioritize the needs of this life. Despite the fact that God is fully aware of their needs. And so Jesus instructs us to be different. He instructs us to seek first or prioritize the kingdom of God and God's righteousness with full assurance that if we do that, God will take care of our needs. You see, Jesus is saying that God's promise to take care of our needs must be preceded by our willingness to prioritize His kingdom and His righteousness. 
Because if you do that, then you'll discover that you don't have nearly as many needs as you think you do. If God's will is the priority of your life, then all your wants and all your desires will be exposed. And what will be left are your true needs. And God promises to supply all of those. See, I think one of the problems we have is we confuse needs and wants. We live in a society of surplus. And so we struggle with understanding what we really need sometimes. And I think when we understand that so many of the things we claim our needs are actually wants, we'll start to realize that God truly does supply all our needs. But he does place that condition to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. We need to be cognizant of the condition of the promise. The fourth thing I want you to notice about needs in Scripture is that God God permits his people to test his need-meeting promise. Now, I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. Throughout the Bible, we are constantly warned not to test God. In Numbers chapter 14 and verse 22, God indicated that the generation of Israelites who witnessed the plagues in Egypt and the miracles in the wilderness, that generation would not enter the promised land because they put him to the test and did not obey his voice. And it's worth pointing out that this situation that's mentioned in Numbers chapter 14 will be referenced multiple times throughout the Bible. And this period, this, this testing the Israelites did of God is equated in future passages with the hardening of the heart, with rebelling against God, with not listening to his voice. It stands as an example of what not to do. The Israelites are held up over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as an example of what you don't do because you don't take God. You can go to Acts chapter 5 and see another example of this. It's in Acts chapter 5 and verse 9 where Peter confronts Sapphira of the Ananias and Sapphira infamy. And, and he criticizes her for her involvement in the donation deception. He says in Acts chapter 5 and verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Her and her husband's sinful actions in Acts chapter 5 are equated, are identified as a test of the Holy Spirit. And the consequence for doing that was their immediate demise. But you can't get more clear on the anti-testing God policy than Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16, which says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. That's the passage Jesus quoted when Satan tempted him to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and be caught by angels. So it's very clear in Scripture, you don't test God. But then we come to this little passage in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. In Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10, God has addressed 
and criticized the Israelites for their failure to observe his tithing commands. And he called their failure to tithe a form of robbery, excuse me, robbery. And then he instructed them with this. He said, bring in the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God gave permission for us to test him in this one area. God says, prioritize me and I'll provide for you. And if you don't believe me, then try me. The fact that God is willing to let us test him on this tells me that he wants us to take his need meeting promises as well as its seek first condition very seriously. God promises to meet your needs if you seek him first. And he goes so far in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10 to say, test me on it. The only place I know of that God gave permission to test him. God permits his people to test his need-meeting promise. But notice it comes with that condition that you seek him first. One last thing I want to draw your attention to about needs is that God presumes that we will be his need-meeting agents. The one thing that stood out to me the most in my preparation for this sermon was just how often God's people are instructed to meet the needs of others. The Bible clearly teaches that God's need-meeting promise will frequently be fulfilled through human agency, particularly through His church. Let me point out a few passages very quickly. There's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28, where Paul instructed the thief to no longer steal, but rather to do honest work with his own hands. Now that seems like a rather unnecessary thing to prescribe until you hear Paul's reasoning. He indicates that the reason the thief should, not, should do honest work is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ultimately, what Paul communicates here in this verse is a theology of work that includes a benevolent objective. Part of the reason you make money should be so that you can bless those in need as an agent of God. But we don't usually talk about stewardship like that. But that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. Now consider this rhetorical question posed in James chapter 2 verse 14 through 16. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? James implies that our failure to address our brother's needs is ultimately a failure of faith. His point is that one of the best ways to demonstrate your faith is by meeting the needs of others. There's an expectation that as a believer, 
You're not just professing it. You're doing something about the needs of others. There's another rhetorical question worth looking at, and it's in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. And there John says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John implies that our failure to address our brother's needs is ultimately a failure to love God. Nothing says I love you to God more than showing our love to our neighbors. And John indicates that one of the chief ways we can show love to our neighbors and thereby to God is through meeting their needs. Being an agent of God's need-meeting promise is one way You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. One last verse that deserves our attention is Titus chapter 3 and verse 14, in which Paul says, Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Now, I need to make three observations real quick about this verse. First, it's worth noting that in the first century, there were Christians who needed to learn to be agents of God who meet the needs of others. For some, benevolence, charity, and giving are all learned practices. They don't come naturally. And Paul expects God's people to learn to devote themselves to such good works. The second thing you should notice here is that Christians should be so concerned about the needs of others that they make it a priority to provide assistance when they can. Notice that Paul instructed Christians to devote themselves to good works. When you devote yourself to something, that speaks to the prioritization, the importance of that purpose in your life. So Paul has this expectation that taking care of the needs of others will be a priority to the Christian. And one last observation here. Notice that failure to help cases of urgent need was equated to unfruitfulness. We know what Jesus said about unfruitful trees in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 18. He said, every tree that is bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So if we don't want to be do, deemed unfruitful, If you don't want that label, if you don't want the consequence that comes with being identified as an unfruitful tree, then we better not neglect our responsibility to meet the needs of others. See, all these passages that I just referenced, they call on the church to be God's need-meeting agents. And we're the descendants of the body which was described in Acts chapter 4, verse 34 and 35, as not having a needy person among them because the church pooled its resources and those resources, resources were distributed to any that had need. This morning, as we reflect on our prosperity, as we reflect on our abundance, as we can look back on yesterday for the most part and realize that we're not really all that needy, 
maybe it should serve as a challenge for us to fulfill the role of being God's need-meeting agents. Now, maybe you needed to hear this sermon this morning because you're experiencing your own unique need. Maybe you're struggling because you have needs. Those needs could be material. They could be emotional. They could be mental. They could be relational. Most definitely, some of them are spiritual. Maybe you needed to be reminded today that God is fully aware of the needs in your life. Maybe you need to be reminded that God promises to meet those needs. Maybe you needed to realize that the number one need in your life is the need for your sins to be forgiven, and that God has provided for that need by sacrificing His one and only Son. And that through the blood of his son, that need can be addressed. If you'll confess that Jesus Christ is the risen God, if you repent of your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. But maybe you're here today and you realize you haven't fulfilled your responsibility as God's need meeting agent. And you need to be challenged challenged to share what God has blessed you with so that others can have their needs met as well. We're gathered here as a body, a body of believers that have all things in common. Maybe today you have needs you need to bring forward. Maybe today you need to request the help of this congregation to meet your needs or You need to turn your needs over to God because you haven't done that yet. As I say at the end of every invitation, whatever your need may be, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.
Kyle for another wonderful lesson this morning. Uh, I want to thank everybody for being here, uh, obviously both members, but especially our visitors. And uh, pray that you're, uh, you'll stick around and let us get to know you if you're visiting with us this morning. And, and pray that you'll come back and be with us this evening at 6 p.m. for our evening worship service. And uh, also uh, 7 o'clock Wednesday night for our midweek Bible study. Um, if you haven't already done so, please do your attendance to, to let us know that you are here. Uh, you can do that online with the QR code in your, in your pew. Um, and we'll be singing uh, number 756, When We All Get to Heaven, number 756, as our closing song. Uh, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer. We'll sing the first verse. <clears throat> sing the wondrous love of Jesus, sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed, He'll prepare for us a place when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Let's all bow together. Our most gracious, loving Heavenly Father and the one and only true God, as we come to the close of this service, uh, we appreciate the lesson that we've had this morning. We just pray, Father, that we all can learn to be content when so many times we have all these wants and help us to really strive to be your ambassador, your agent for those that do have needs and help us to realize the difference between our needs and our wants. Father, we've got a lot of people that's gonna be traveling this week for the holiday period and we just pray that your guiding hand will bring them back to us at, uh, safely. Be with each one of us as we go about our daily lives and we prepare for a new year. Help us to vow to you and to ourselves that we will be better people than we were in the past. Now, as we depart here and uh, go to our homes, we ask you to guide us. Help us to get back here to meet with our brethren. We thank you for Jesus, for all he means to us. And thank you for his death and resurrection and our hope that we have through, through him. And we thank you for having him there as our advocate. Father, be with us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.